I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. Previously on Once Upon a Time in the Valley, we gave our three best possible answers to the question that, in some ways, is the engine driving this entire story, this entire podcast. Who ratted out Tracy? Answer slash theory number one. Tracy ratted out herself to save herself. She'd made a deal with a distribution company called VIP, run by Honey Weber and Cy Adler. Honey Weber and Cy Adler, they were heavy-duty people. I met with her at her home, and it was kind of a weird experience because she had these two guys there lounging around. They looked like they were goons, and she had this big snarly dog. There was this background vibe of, don't mess with us, we're bad fuckers. But what if the rumors are true? And that Tracy did those bad fuckers a bad turn by lying to them, telling them that she and Stuart Dell, her boyfriend and business partner, had gone to France to shoot Tracy I Love You and then were too high to actually make it to set. They didn't buy the Coke story. I imagine they threatened her pretty good. You know, you you turn that movie over to us or we're going to come after you, you know. Tracy went public with her age to put the partners under too much scrutiny to carry out their threats. This was after the whole age thing came down, and of course, once the light of uh, the law shined on the whole thing, well, the VIP people scurried away like cockroaches when you turn on a light. Answer slash theory number two. Tracy ratted out herself to save herself, but for a different reason. What if, while flying back from France, just after her 18th birthday, Tracy was caught carrying a false passport and illegal narcotics? You're talking about an 18-year-old girl, okay, who's using, and this girl was busted, okay? She did certain things. She manipulated. She had fake ID. That is like felony, 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 felony. You're going to prison for the rest of your life unless you do say or be whatever we want from you right now about the people that you're involved with. Okay? Broke. She broke. It's a kid. She chose herself the way I see it in that moment over anybody else. In my personal opinion, in my experience, if it would have been those pornographers sitting on the other side of the coin and they would have said, give up that girl or we're going to take you, 
I don't believe any one of us would not have been at risk that day for being thrown under the bus, okay? Answer slash theory number three. Nobody ratted out Tracy because there was no need to rat out Tracy because the FBI already knew about Tracy. The FBI, which was handling the Tracy Lord's case, essentially the head of the FBI was Attorney General Meese. I suppose it could be a total coincidence and Meese didn't know what was going on with the Tracy Lord's case and didn't know anything about the Meese Commission report. But I don't believe in coincidences and I certainly didn't believe there. So I assume that they were linked and that the two were handled in some respect uh, to capitalize on the maximum serendipity of the two events. And serendipity may be unfair because in that case, the Meese Commission folks, I mean, the, the Attorney General had the ability to control the timing of both events. I'm Lily Analek, and this is Once Upon a Time in the Valley, featuring Ashley West. Okay, Ashley, I want to start this episode where we started the previous episode, with Troy's account of the last time he saw Tracy. At her apartment in Redondo Beach, July 1986, two days before the FBI broke down her door. You're regressing, Lily. I know, but I can't seem to move on. I find the scene so haunting. You have Tracy bent over that mirror, piled high with cocaine, maybe not even recognizing her own reflection. What I wonder is, did she like what she saw? No, and yes. I think she's divided, of two minds. That seems clear from how she acts with Troy. It's, look what I've become. But it's also, look what I've become. So true. In between acting frightened, freaked out, and begging him not to leave her, she's showing him her porn videos. And it's the last line of Troy's story that really gets to me. He's driving back to Oklahoma, to his self-exile, and he's weeping and realizing she's lost to him. And he says, I didn't know who this person was anymore. Her name was Tracy now. And Tracy shall stay. Briefly, at the start of her straight career, she reverts to Nora Kuzma, but only briefly. Here she is explaining why she stuck with Tracy. And I thought, okay, I want to be taken seriously, so I'm going to, I'm going to go back and use my real name. And then I had the double-edged sword of everyone saying, well, you're, you're lying about who you are. She doesn't want to be accused of misrepresenting herself. A valid reason, even a commendable reason. But I suspect there's also another one. Listen to this exchange between Tracy and Jay Leno on The Tonight Show in 1995. The quality of the audio is poor, so we're going to keep this short and painless. Now, is that your real name, Tracy Moore? Jay asks Tracy what her real name is. Her reply. No, it's actually Nora Kuzma. What is it? Note the grudging tone. Jay then tells her it's a nice name, and she says, Come on, do I look like Nora Kuzma to you? She's kidding when she says that, but kidding on the square, I think. Nora Kuzma and Born Loser seem to be, to her, synonymous terms. Mom and dad a couple of nobodies, raised in semi-squalor, getting jerked off on and knocked up, chased out of high school by mean boy bullies, I get the feeling that that's her view of who Nora Kuzma is. Tracy Lords, on the other hand, is a queen. A queen in hell, maybe, but a queen nonetheless. One who rules over all she sees and takes shit from exactly nobody. And if Tracy Lords has fallen so far, Tracy Lords has also risen so high. So the false self has become realer than the real. Yeah, jettisoning your origins and starting fresh is practically a birthright in this country. 
It's the pursuit of happiness part of the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence, one of our unalienable rights. And that's the right she's exercising here. Tracy Lords is part of the grand American tradition of autogenesis, is following in the footsteps of other sublime self-creations, like Andrew Warhola, like Jay Gatsby. Like Norma Jean Baker. Like Norma Jean Baker, most of all. Norma Jean Baker, who became Marilyn Monroe, but who started out as a nude model, same as Tracy. Tracy is Marilyn 2.0, next generation Marilyn. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So we ended part two of this podcast, Little Red Riding Hood's Revenge, or the Tracy Lord story as told by the adult industry, with Tom Byron talking about running into Tracy at a VSCA show in Vegas in 1989. Him queuing up like a mook for an autograph, her cool-eyeing him when he reaches the front of the line, him walking off with his 10-inch tail between his legs. Tracy and Tom's anecdote is the big winner. She's beat the adult industry every which way, legally, financially, fame-wise, in terms of public opinion and sympathy. Plus, she's poised on the brink of doing what couldn't be done, crossing from the valley to Hollywood. NBC is making a movie of her life, tentative title, Out of the Blue, The Tracy Lord Story. And she's about to appear in a John Waters movie and marry into the John Waters family. It's been said that a happy ending is a matter of choosing where to stop your story, which is why we stopped our story in part two right there, to give it a happy ending. To give it Tracy's idea of a happy ending. Right, an important distinction, because it's definitely not ours. To us, to me and Ashley, Tracy is a porn star, which means a combination movie star, rock star, top athlete, and sexual outlaw, an icon of libido and danger and rebellion. So a porn star becoming part of the Hollywood establishment does not, in our book, a happy ending make. What's more, we believe that Hollywood in 1986, at the time Tracy was knocking on its door, pleading to be let in, was dead. And it was dead, in large part, because of the porn industry, which, thanks to VHS, was out of the shadows in a small time. Porn showed Hollywood up, 
called Hollywood's bluff. It did. The thrill of the movies has always been the thrill of the illicit, of seeing something you aren't supposed to see. For decades, Hollywood had dangled in front of our shining eyes the promise that we, the audience, were actually going to get our voyeuristic heart's desire, unfettered access to the keyhole. Finally, we'd be allowed to watch beautiful people doing it. Only to break the promise again and again, in movie after movie. And yet, suckers that we were, we fell for it every time. We knew that we were never going to get what we wanted, that we were just going to get cock-teased to death, yet we couldn't walk away because we were hooked on the hope. Our longing made us vulnerable. Only now that porn was around, we didn't have to put up with that nonsense. Porn kept its word. Porn came across. Didn't faint a headache at the end of the night. And movies, which used to be young, dangerous, wild, free, suddenly weren't. In comparison with porn, they were middle-aged, fuddy-duddy, restrained, passé. And movies, their stars at any rate knew it, bowed down to porn stars in private. His adult star, Kelly Nichols. The interesting thing about Hollywood was when the stars met porn stars, that was their star. That's what they were like, oh, you're a porn star. Oh, my God, let me have their autograph. So that was their get off was that. And that, and that's why you would have porn stars at a party and you would brag about it. It's both shocking and shockingly obvious. Porn stars are movie stars, movie stars. Of course they are. Because movie stars secretly want to be porn stars. Scratch that. Because movie stars secretly are porn stars. Think about it. Practically every time a movie star's phone is hacked, out come the erotic selfies. Why would Jennifer Lawrence send a nude photo of herself? Or Scarlett Johansson? Or Kirsten Dunst? Why did Amanda Seyfried take a picture of herself, or allow a picture of her to be taken, performing a sex act on her boyfriend? These women aren't stupid or naive. They don't fail to understand the risks. So the impulse must be irresistible. It's like that promise we were talking about a minute ago. They have to keep it. Even if they only keep it covertly. Tracy, though, kept it overtly. She was a porn star, not in secret, which is why she can't then be a movie star. Once you've been explicit, you can't turn around and be implicit. Once you've been brazen, you can't turn around and be coy. No, it doesn't work that way. And besides, the ambition to be a movie star just seems so corny, so stale. That old Hollywood doodah. Lana Turner sipping soda pop at Schwab's drugstore, getting discovered by a talent scout. We've talked quite a bit about Tracy's timing, how uncannily good it was. She enters the adult business at the moment it's exploding because of VHS. She's the centerfold for the best-selling penthouse issue of all time, courtesy of the Miss America scandal. Her 18th birthday coincides almost precisely with the dropping of the Mies Report. And she leaves the adult business just as it's about to go down the toilet. But at a certain point, her timing betrays her, becomes uncannily bad. Tracy publishes her memoir right before, practically the exact instant before. Porn is not just normalized and commodified, but celebrated. Underneath it all, about the evils of the porn industry, when it deigns to talk about the porn industry at all, Really, what it wants to talk about is making it in Hollywood, hits bookstores in July 2003. A handful of months later, you get the one-two punch of Paris Hilton's sex tape leaked on the internet in November 2003, and Paris Hilton's reality show, The Simple Life, premiering on Fox in December 2003, which turns Paris into the most famous person in the world, only to be supplanted, all about Eve style, by her quick study of an understudy, 
Kim Kardashian, former arranger of her closet. By 2007, Kim will have her own sex tape in reality show. So our biggest stars are porn stars. The amateur sex tape, a sort of DIY casting couch. And Kim wasn't supplanted until Donald Trump announced his candidacy for president in June 2015 and became not just the most famous person in the world, but the ruler of it. Donald Trump is, of course, a reality star, has been since 2004 when The Apprentice debuted. He is also, however, a kind of porn star. Not only because he made a cameo, fully clothed mercifully, in the softcore Playboy video Centerfold 2000, or because he did a scene, off-camera mercifully, with adult actress Stormy Daniels, but because of this. According to a 2019 story in New York Magazine's The Cut by Vanessa Gregoriadis, Trump was wild for Paris Hilton's sex tape, and for a reason other than the obvious. Writes Gregoriadis, In 2003, when Paris Hilton's sex tape was leaked on the internet, Donald wouldn't stop talking about it, saying, Paris is laughing all the way to the bank. She's got the last laugh. She's marvelous. Ivanka could not believe her father was not only idolizing an airhead heiress caught blowing a guy on night vision video, but encouraging her to follow Paris's lead. End quote. You caught that, right? According to Gregoriadis, Trump was advising Ivanka, his beloved eldest daughter, to make a sex tape. Trump is a moral idiot, and maybe even an idiot idiot, but he's also a conceptual genius, and he can read the cultural temper of the time better than almost anybody and his advice to his daughter is as astute as it is repugnant. So just as Tracy is the post-Marilyn Marilyn, she's also the pre-Paris and Kim, Paris and Kim. In other words, she faces both ways, embodies the manufactured stardom of old Hollywood, as well as the personalized stardom enabled by social media. She's simultaneously out of the past and ahead of her time. And then there's Jenna Jameson's How to Make Love Like a Porn Star, a cautionary tale which was published in August 2004. The cautionary tale in the title is tongue-in-cheek, since the book is anything but. What the book is, is a Horatio Alger story set in the porn world. Jenna's trajectory is Sardian, yet she's climbing that ladder of success one depraved act at a time. Says Jenna to Steve Owenstein of Wicked Pictures when she first meets him, I want to be the biggest porn star ever. And by God, she makes it happen. Jenna isn't ashamed of her porn identity. No, she revels in it. At least she did then. She has in recent years become anti-porn. And her memoir was everywhere in 2004, a major cultural moment, turning her into a mainstream hit and the most improbable of role models. This is adult actress Veronica Hard. Jenna Jameson's book, I think, inspired tons of women to see it as a career choice. You know, and she was an exception, um, not the rule. But I think a lot of, of people were inspired to get into the business because of that, because of her. There was media hoopla surrounding the publication of Underneath It All. Naturally, there was. Tracy's is a juicy story, but the way she told it wasn't juicy. In fact, she deliberately squeezed the juice out of it. As we said in the very first episode of this podcast, she told it as a cautionary tale. A real cautionary tale. No tongue, no cheek. Only the times themselves were incautious, which is, I think, why the book didn't really go anywhere. The moment had come for an out-and-proud porn star, or even for a half-proud, half-ashamed porn star, but one so blazing and fierce that she immolated from within and from without, nearly burning the business to the ground. And Tracy had missed it. But back to Tracy's ambition to be a movie star, which she never quite fulfilled. It turns out the brink of crossing over 
was as near as she'd get. There was no NBC TV movie with Christina Applegate or any other ingenue. Crybaby was a commercial and financial flop, and it didn't lead to starring roles in big studio movies. Supposedly, she came close to Breathless Mahoney, Madonna's role in Dick Tracy, to Ginger McKenna, Sharon Stone's role in Casino. Close in a nickel, though, gets you a cup of coffee. I'm sure some of it is, as Tracy's insisted, that her porn career was held against her. She said this in an interview in 1996. The thing is that I haven't been successful because of my past. I've been successful in spite of my past. But only some of it. The truth is, on the mainstream screen, she's never made much of an impression. She's beautiful, no question. Beautiful face, beautiful refined features, beautiful figure. A cool blonde straight out of Hitchcock as far as her looks go. But her presence is oddly bland. She's a competent actress. She's certainly not a disgrace or embarrassing. Yet she never catches fire. Not like she apparently did on the porn screen. Why? Why should that be? Why in Hollywood was she just another pretty girl? What prevented her talent from translating? Adult photographer Suze Randall has a theory. She was a better fucker than an actress. What do you think, Ashley? Is it as crude and simple as that? Maybe. Or maybe Tracy felt it had to be as crude and simple as that. Meaning, it was one or the other for her. Be a sex symbol, or be a serious actor. And she made her choice. Yeah, because there's a conspicuously muted quality to her sexuality in mainstream movies, even when the role calls for sexiness. Here's cultural critic James Walcott. They love to cast her in, like, neo-noirs, where she was like the vixen, the ice maiden, you know, the gal who led the guys to their doom. The thing was, it was interesting how when she wasn't doing sex on screen, Tracy really wasn't very sexy. I mean, in those later roles where she's in B-movies, she's actually not very sexy. She's very mannered. And when she's actually doing regular lines and scenes with actors, she's much less interesting. And writer Pat Jordan, in his 1990 GQ profile of Tracy, written when she was only 21, described her as, quote, almost anti-sexual, end quote. I asked him what he meant by this. She wasn't sexy at all. I mean, she dressed it, you know, she dressed like Tracy Lord. But, uh, no, she was not seductive with me at all. This is the farthest cry imaginable from the descriptions of her we got from the adult industry. Tim Connolly saying she just smelled like sex and looked like sex. Christy Canyon saying anything at all about her. It's as if there was a switch inside Tracy. And when she moved to Hollywood, she flipped it to off. See, I think the fact that Tracy held porn in such contempt also helped her. That she didn't care about it. That it disgusted her and made her disgusted with herself. Gave her a wildness, a recklessness. Viewers couldn't look away. And in her memoir, full of half-truths and not-quite-half-truths, there's a fundamental truth. Writing about her first porn sex scene, the one she claims in the paragraph before to have been tricked into filming, she says, I had already given in to a feeling I had never known during sex. Power. And with that power came pleasure. I was blind to everything around me, and I wasn't acting for a camera. I was acting out. That's what porn did for me. It allowed me to release all the fury I'd felt my entire life. And that's what got me off. Freedom, peace, revenge, sex, power. I'd finally found a place to put my energies. I was vengeful, even savage in sex scenes. I was nothing short of a sexual terrorist. 
You can feel the aggression coming off those words, the violence. They crackle with the electrical force of a bomb, and of course they blow all the other words in the book away. In a previous episode, we spent a bit of time on hardcore punk rock, which as we discussed came out of South Bay, and which, as we also discussed, was very much male-dominated. It was huge with the North Redondo boys. And ever since, I've wondered if what Tracy did in the Valley wasn't the girl version of that. Yeah, Ashley, I think you might be onto something. Two different forms of hardcore action, obviously, but essentially the same. Both are a kind of performance art, and both are what the French call art brut, meaning raw art, art that's outside the mainstream, art that's outside the academic tradition, art that's beneath contempt and beyond the pale, art that refuses to apologize or back down, ever, renegade art, desperado art, gutter art, in short, art you can't take home to mother. So porn is true to Tracy's roots in a way. Porn is North Redondo. And if porn is North Redondo, that makes mainstream movies South Redondo. Safe, nice, respectable, snobby and small-minded, a little bland, and yet to be aspired to. And the fact that Tracy cared so much about making good in mainstream worked against her, I think. Her eagerness to please rendered her cowardly, castrated, or, since she's not a guy, de-ovaried. She was faking it, basically. And the camera could tell she was faking it, plain and simple. We're giving Tracy a hard time for her mainstream career, but it's not like if we could jump in a time machine, go back to 1986, we would advise her to stay in porn. No, we definitely would not. There was a poignant moment in our interview with Paul Thomas, known as P.T. P.T., who started out as a straight actor, was repped by William Morris and played Peter in Norman Jewison's 1973 musical drama, Jesus Christ Superstar, is as elevated a figure as exists in the adult industry. His PT on his reputation. In the X-rated business, from the very beginning, I was the scum on the top of the pond, the king of fools. I was the best of a bad lot. I was winning awards right and left, all over the place. The fact that I had enough talent and wherewithal to be signed by the best agent in Hollywood, in the X-rated business, I was a genius. PT is a member of the AVN Hall of Fame and the X-Rated Critics Hall of Fame. Plus, a lot of industry people think he's the basis for the Burt Reynolds character in Boogie Nights. And yet, this is what he said to us in our interview. Again, in that telltale second hour. I would make these films like the masseuse that were lauded as... You know, and you'd sit down. So a couple times I did it, I'd have some of my, you know... Harvard educated friends over to watch the movie, or I'd tell people to watch the movie, or I'd give them a copy of that or some of my other erudite films. And they say, How'd you like it? Oh, the anal was great. And this is like, you know, I was a friend, a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief, whatever. You know, how'd you like them? It says, ah, the anal was, what do you mean? What about the story? Ah, PT, what gives a shit about the story? We would be at parties and, oh, well, you're the director. Let's see what you've done. Let's see what you've done, PT. Well, here, this one, best film. I'll watch it. A good anal. I'm a talented guy. It gets lost. 
the the energy goes down to the lower chakra people they don't see that it just uh, the anal was great that's that's it his words are funny yet there's pathos in them clearly porn has its limitations and they're severe so you can't blame tracy for wanting to get out from under them you can't this too we were premature in signing hollywood's death certificate in 1986 hollywood was dying but not dead in fact in 1986 hollywood was having a great year Maybe it's last great year. Jonathan Demme's Something Wild was released in 86, as was David Cronenberg's The Fly, and Michael Mann's Manhunter, and David Byrne's True Stories, and James Cameron's Aliens, and Dennis Potter's The Singing Detective. British and for TV, but still. And the highest cinematic achievement of the entire decade, Blue Velvet, came out in 1986. It was directed by David Lynch, who is, I would argue, a pornographic director. Paul Thomas's definition is, I think, too narrow. The best this country's ever produced, and who has also, not coincidentally, made the best ever movie about Hollywood, Mulholland Drive. Understand porn, and you understand Hollywood. Understand Hollywood, and you understand porn. And if Tracy hadn't forsworn porn, she wouldn't have been let into Hollywood at all. No way, not a chance. Tom Byron understood this. At that time, the world was not ready to accept an unrepentant porn star. She had to make up this this thing in order to get over in the mainstream. She couldn't say, no, nah, I didn't. It was great. And blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? That didn't fit the narrative. Ginger Lynn also wanted mainstream. Only Ginger didn't forswear porn. Amberlynn, in her rough-voiced wisdom, tried to convince Ginger that Ginger was not only wasting her time, but blowing an opportunity. First, the opportunity. A gentleman turned up at my house one day and he said, I own a club in Canada and I'm going to hire you in my club. And I said, well, I don't dance. I'm not a dancer. And he said, you don't have to. We'll have our dancers work with you and we'll work out a show that works for everyone. I opened my first show to 600 people and these people were pounding on the stage. And when I used to come out on stage, they used to do this thing where they'd go, Amber, Amber, Amber. And they would pound the stage and they would get this whole momentum going, kind of like at a hockey game. After the show, we were looking for anything. So I went up into my dressing room and I grabbed every pair of underwear I could find. And we went down and we sat up at a table and we would take Polaroid picture and we would sell it. We sold it to them for $10. And then they could buy my panties, which I would autograph, put on and off right there in front of them and take the picture in the panties. And then they could buy that separately. And that's what started merchandising right there. I was making $25,000 a week. We owned this feature dance circuit because the people that taught me to go on stage and feature they had this whole feature market where these beautiful girls would put on these elaborate shows in all these costumes, but they didn't have names. And so I came in and had draw because I had the name. So when I put the two dynamics together, it was a perfect storm. So I came back from Canada going, oh my God, everybody, there's a whole new industry out here. Ginger, though, didn't want to hear it. Amber again. My focus was not to own the crown of the porn industry. 
my focus was to monetize and make money in all avenues that were available to me based on the fact that I was Amberlynn, you know, this character. This club owner, he wanted me in Ginger. And he booked me in Ginger. And at the last minute, Ginger called me up and said, I'm not going on the road. You're going to have to go on your own or find somebody else because I've decided I'm going into mainstream acting. My manager has told me that I need to distance myself from the adult or whatever, what is going on. And I was like, Ginger, do you really think they're going to give you an Oscar? You suck cock for a living, for God's sake, girl. Do you really think they're going to stand you, trot you out on that stage? And she was like, I'm going to take my chance. But Ginger didn't have a chance, did she? Just the illusion of one. Here's Ginger. My very first audition for a mainstream project was for a film called Beverly Hills Cop Part 2. The character was a waitress, and I I worked on it for two weeks before I went to the audition, and I was really, really excited. And and it's Tony Scott, and and it's Beverly Hills Cop, and I've worked so hard, and I'm so excited. And the first thing that Tony says to me is, can we get a nude Polaroid? And the first thing I say to Tony is, no. And he goes, well, how about a topless? And I, I said, no, I, I'm reading for the waitress. And and I go, why don't we just read? Because now I'm like, I'm going to cry. I'm so close to like breaking down. So I'm just going to go into this character and be funny and do what I've, I've rehearsed. And I, I read it and I fucking nail it. I work hard when I do stuff and, and I know that I did a really good job. And when I get done, Tony says to me, we want you to do this like you want to fuck everybody that you've ever looked at. That's when the tears came, and that's when I walked out, and that was my first Hollywood audition. So Hollywood, behind closed doors, is also the exploitation business. But worse, I would argue, because the exploitation is behind closed doors. And if Ginger was subjected to that kind of treatment, you know Tracy was too. I'm sure she played some variation of that audition scene many times. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Unlike Ginger, unlike Tracy, much like Amber, Christy Canyon accepted the limitations of porn and operated within them. And it worked for her. We know it worked for her because we interviewed her at her house in the hills. And that house is spectacular. Christy is so sunny, so bouncy, such a true blue California girl, that it takes a while to see what a tough cookie she is. She, even more than Amber, is the realist of this group, the pragmatist, the one who takes the measure of things. Part of the reason that that story Ginger just told about Tony Scott is so painful to listen to is because Ginger, for all her moxie and spunk, is vulnerable. She's open and impulsive. That's her nature. Christy is just as friendly, but she's not as vulnerable. She doesn't have romantic ideas about people in the world. That affords her some protection. And she's ambitious but not in the way that Tracy and Ginger are ambitious. They took it seriously. They both had aspirations of being a mainstream star after this. And they'll both say it. They wanted to be movie stars. I didn't want to be. I didn't care. To me, it was no big deal. I was just there having fun, making my $600. I I had no aspirations to do anything outside of making porn. I knew I couldn't act. I knew I was in the perfect pond. It was made for me. And here she is on why a mainstream crossover is next to impossible. Once you have done adult, and this is my opinion, I'd love for someone to prove me differently, but I personally think that once you have done adult, 
you've got a black mark over your name. There's a slur against you. You were the girl that got naked and had sex on film. Is there anything wrong with it? No. Will mainstream think that there is? Most likely, because no one's ever really broken through huge. A few have tried. Ginger Lynn, of course, Tracy Lords, Jenna Jameson, Sasha Gray. But they didn't make it huge. They did a few little, some meaty roles. I'll give them that. They've done mainstream stuff. But no one's really broken through and been accepted. They never became like whoever the stars are these days. They never became an Angelina Jolie or uh, whoever the names are. They were always like, oh, and it's starring that porn star. And you know what? That's, I think, just the way it goes, sadly. The adult figure of Tracy Zira, who debatably achieved the most mainstream success, wasn't a performer. It was a director, Greg Dark, the man behind Tracy's most famous porno, New Wave Hookers. In the 90s, Greg reinvented himself as a director of music videos, specializing in, you won't believe this, the bubblegum princesses. Yes, Greg directed a Britney Spears video, From the Bottom of My Broken Heart, two Mandy Moore videos, So Real and Walk Me Home, as well as a video for Leslie Carter, younger sister of Backstreet Boy, Nick Carter. Leslie's song was called, Like Wow. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that Britney Spears, a superstar at 16 because of the song, Baby One More Time, in its video, featuring her in a schoolgirl outfit, pigtails and thigh highs, is a Tracy Lords who slipped past the censors, an underage porn star masquerading as a teen pop star. And Greg Dark helped her do it. Christie's right, of course, about movie stardom eluding Tracy. But let's give Tracy her due. She did become a working actress, a serious achievement, with recurring roles on cultural juggernaut shows like Married with Children, Roseanne, and Melrose Place, supporting roles in major motion picture-type movies like Blade and Zack and Miri Make a Porno. Her career has been a success, if not an out-and-out triumph. That she accomplished as much as she did is a testament to her iron will. In a 1996 interview, she said this. And I'm very proud of the fact that I put it behind me, that I could be 18 years old and say, no, I'm not a bimbo, no, I'm not a moron. And no, I don't buy that I'm an outcast or a loser for the rest of my life because of something I did when I was a kid. Good for her. I mean that sincerely. And while her first marriage to Brooke Yeaton, John Waters' godson, fizzled out after a few years, her second marriage to steel worker Jeff Grunewald, a union man like her dad, like Troy, has endured. Tracy and Jeff even have a child, a son, who appeared with Tracy and Jeff on season four of Celebrity Wife Swap. Tracy swapped with Jacquet Harry, in case you're curious. Okay, so we're going to end part three, not as we ended part two, with happily ever after, since there's no such thing, but with ambiguously ever after, since, hey, that's life and how it goes. Once again, Christy Canyon. We were all friends with Johnny Ramone in the 90s. And he was married, never kissed him, nothing. And he loved the 80s girls. He loved Ginger and Tracy and me. And he would come and see me at strip clubs. And he said once, yeah, Linda, my wife and I know Tracy. And and once I said to her, oh, I love Christy Canyon, da-da. And she looked at him. He said, Christy, it was the weirdest thing. She looked at him and said, who? And he said, Christy Canyon. I don't know who that is. And he said, Christy, it dawned on me. She obviously knew who you were, but she had to go again with that whole in denial. I was on drugs. 
And I thought, wow, bitch, I mean, you know, how could you not write But, and again, it was that whole, you know, preserving herself and, you know, woe is me. I was the victim. But Tracy, I know you know who I was because in the late 80s, when I was working for my dad, everything had come out. Da, da, da. I was at the Beverly Center and I saw her. I mean, I'm going back to like 1987. And I was like, Tracy. And she didn't turn. I was like, Nora. She didn't turn. I was like, whatever her other name was, Chrissy Nussman. And finally she turned around. I'm like, and she, and we hugged. Like she knew who I was at the fucking mall. So I know you knew when Johnny Ramone asked you. I don't remember much. It was very short, like a snippet of my memory. And she was buying a dress for an occasion she was going to. And I don't remember what. And I remember her saying, Something like, yeah, it used to be like one sex scene and I could buy this dress. Meaning like she had to work a lot now to pay for that one dress. And I'll, I don't remember how it went, but I remember we were laughing about the business. And then I've never seen her since. And it was fun seeing her and she was adorable. You know, and, and again, I have no feelings, you know, ill feelings that she lied about everything. It didn't hurt me. But but I remember just like thinking, I remember seeing you at the mall and you were cute and we were kind of laughing about it. Do you know what I mean? It's a lovely moment the two share. No amnesia, no ill will or rancor. They've both survived a brutal industry in their own wild youths and with their spirits and senses of humor intact. And how great. And maybe no more needs to be said on the subject. Well, maybe just a little more. Yeah, maybe just a little. Next time on the epilogue episode of Once Upon a Time in the Valley. As it turns out, Underneath it all is Tracy's second memoir. There's a first. It's from the late 80s, and it's called Out of the Blue, The Tracy Lord Story. The same title, as you might recall, as the TV movie of her life that NBC was supposed to make. Out of the Blue was, as far as we know, never written. But a detailed proposal for Out of the Blue was written. And it was sent to us last week by a listener of this podcast, who's been holding on to it for some 30-odd years. I was obviously extremely keen when we got our hands on that never-before-heard Tracy interview from 1985, the one we played in episode 10, because it gave us porn-era Tracy. It allowed us to hear what she sounded like, how she was thinking, what she was thinking, the plans she was making during her adult career. And of course, we already knew what established Hollywood-era Tracy sounded like because of underneath it all. And excuse me if I sound overexcited here, but this proposal is, to me, the missing piece. It's Tracy just after she left the industry when the experience was still fresh, when her emotions were still raw. And she had a co-writer on it. Typically we would sit on the couch in the living room. So we would sit there under the skylight and talk and talk and talk. I would ask questions, she would answer them and she'd go off on long riffs. Sometimes her voice would break and she would cry. Not really cry, but just get tears in her eyes. She found herself wondering at all who she was. One day she would have sex with three men, the next day with a woman, and then there'd be a masturbation scene. And do I love women? Do I like men? What am I doing here? Who am I? And his graduate was getting darker and darker and darker. And finally, when I had to turn light on, that was when she usually left. Let's try to fit that missing piece into our almost completed puzzle. This has been a presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, executive produced by Chris Corcoran and me, Lily Analik, directed by Zach Levitt, 
created and written by me. Produced by Ashley West. Edited and mastered by Chris Basil, Bill Schultz, Perry Crowell, and Ian Mont. Theme music and original score by Joel Goodman. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malangone. Field recording by Rich Berner. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josefina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Once Upon a Time in the Valley is hosted by me and Ashley West. Thanks for listening. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.